And many of us, when we wake up in the morning, we think of what we're going to do for the day. Maybe a small plan, maybe a big plan, maybe the only goal for the moment is make it out of bed, make it to the end of the day. But we're thinking about maybe the things we're going to get done in the day, maybe what we're going to have for breakfast. I don't know what you were thinking this morning, but my guess is one thing you were not thinking was how you were going to sin today. Or maybe you were planning to sin today. How many people were planning to sin today? You got up this morning and said, I've got a good idea of what I'm going to do today. Of all the bad things I'm going to do. But that's the truth of it. We don't think that way. We don't wake up in the morning thinking about wanting to sin. But the truth is, usually by the end of the day, if we look back on how the day went, we realize we did at some point in the day. There was something we did, something we said, maybe something we didn't do, or something we didn't say. And so there's this struggle that we have where we wake up and we want to do good, but we find ourselves not doing it. And so our passage today has that feeling for us. And so I'm going to read the scripture we're going to be looking at from the, Paul's letter to the Romans. We've been looking at Romans for about 13 weeks now. Romans is this letter written by Paul, an early follower of Jesus, to the church in Rome to deal with some of the divisions that they're going on there and to explain to them the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And so we're reading from Romans chapter 7, and I'm going to begin at verse 7. And Paul writes this, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Well, certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known about what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, spring sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. 
So you kind of hear this, I do what I don't want to do, I don't want to do it, but I do. And he goes back and forth with this. And that's that feeling of this passage that we get. But as I've been reading and studying the passage this week, one of the things that I came to a conclusion is, I don't think this passage, though it feels like us, is really about us. In other words, I don't think when Paul is writing here, he's describing the Christian experience. I don't think he's describing the experience of someone who's given their life to Jesus, someone who's pledged their allegiance, who's asked Jesus to be their Lord, who's been justified by Him. That doesn't mean I don't think it's helpful, and we'll get to that. We'll help, help us to see why this passage is important. And to be fair, there are diverse views. There are different ways of looking at it. Many read this as the experience of a Christian, but I don't think that's what it is, and there's a couple reasons why. One is historical reasons. Historically, in the early church, these people who were commentating, almost no one read it as being about the Christian experience. Almost all read it as the experience prior to Christ. The other things that make me think so are verses like verse 14, where it says, I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Well, if we've been reading through Paul's letter back in chapter 6, like in verse 17 of chapter 6, he already says, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, so Paul has just said in the chapter 4, you used to be slaves to sin, so how can he now be in chapter 7 saying the Christian experiences that were slaves to sin? Or in chapter 7, verse 18, he says, For I know that good in self does not dwell in me. He says, For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. Well, how many of you can carry out good? We can carry out some, right? We can do some. And so I don't think that is what he's talking about. What I think Paul is painting this picture of himself or maybe others or maybe a group prior to being saved. So let's set the big picture of the letter to the Romans. I already talked about this letter from Paul to this group, this church in Rome. Paul hadn't ever been there, but he knew this group. And this group, it sounds like, was having some issues. And we know this as we read letter later on in the letter, that there were these two groups, one known as the weak and one as the strong. And most likely what was going on was this group known as the weak wanted everyone to follow the Jewish laws. They wanted them to ascribe to these laws of Moses to do all these things. And then there was the group that's strong that wasn't. And so there were divisions, antagonism within the church. And so Paul begins the letter by painting the condition of we're all under sin. He spends like three chapters just doing that, painting the picture of what sin is, its effects on people, and how it warps us and changes us. And then he begins to go on and he says, but we're justified through Jesus Christ. And he talks about it as this grace or this gift that God gives us. And it's a gift that we receive by faith. And then chapters 5 through 8 are really the picture of what justification looks like. And what I talked about a number of weeks back is justification is a declaration of innocence, but justification is also a transformation. In other words, when God saves us, He doesn't just say, now you're innocent and I forgive you. He also begins to work and to change our lives too. He begins to make us and draw us into that. And so this picture in 5 through 8 is a picture of that transformation, and He paints it. Chapter 5 is this picture of Adam, the first man, and then the move to Jesus where we're free from sin and now under grace. Chapter 6 is this picture of slaves to sin and now slaves to righteousness that were dead to sin. And now chapter 7 will be about life in the flesh versus life in the spirit. And chapter 8, well actually we'll get to the life in the spirit. Chapter 7 is primarily about life in the flesh. 
In chapter 8 is life in the Spirit. And it's really in chapter 7 to look at this relationship to the law. And now we think of law as different pictures. The law was what God gave to the people of Israel. In the Old Testament, these, we think of those rules. It's that part of the Bible that when you're doing a reading plan, you get stuck on. So most people I know have that experience of they get excited. It's like, oh, I'm going to finally read through the Bible this year and you read through Genesis. And there's all kinds of great stories in Genesis. You got the creation story and the flood and the Tower of Babel and the Joseph and all with his brothers. You get into Exodus and more good stuff. People in slavery, there's the plagues and these miracles and crossing the Red Sea and getting into the desert. And then you get to about Exodus chapter 18, 19, and they come to Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai, there's this great mountain and God's there and there's thunder and lightning on the mountain. And God gives Moses the Ten Commandments written, chiseled in stone, written by his finger, and he comes down from the mountain. And then at the end of Exodus 20, it goes into this big, long description of the tabernacle, and you're like, oh. And then it goes, and then we get everyone's favorite book, Leviticus. How many people have read through Leviticus? No, no, you don't. I'm not going to. But <laughs> Leviticus is just, it's, it's rule after rule, and lots of just strange things in there. And then Numbers has some stories in it, but more of the laws. And then Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy is simply the Greek word meaning second law. And so we go back and we do it all over again. But all these laws are what God gave to the people of Israel to help set them apart. They weren't random laws, but it was a way to describe, this is how you are to live to be my people, because God had called His people to be a special people, a light to the nations. And he gave them these laws, but there were a lot of laws. There were laws related to rituals and, and purity, but also I mean, there was the do not kill and do not steal, but there were also about certain clothes they could wear and how they could cook their meals. But it was what set them apart from the nations around them. And so when Paul is talking about the law, that's what he's talking about. And one of the questions that was going on, I think, in the church of Rome was, do we need the law for right living? In other words, do we need the rules to live the right way? And is it possible to live the right way? And so Paul starts chapter 7 with this kind of wonky parable. We skipped those first few verses, but if you read the start of chapter 7, he, he talks about a man married to a, a woman, and then the, the man dies, and so the woman's free to marry somebody else because now the, the man's dead. And he's painting this picture of and what he's drawing the parallel to is what he's talked about in chapter 6 is we're dead to the law. In other words, we no longer need to abide by it. And so he's setting it up, but chapter 7, verses 5 and 6 kind of provide an outline of what comes after. And so in Romans chapter 7, verse 5, he says, For when we were in the realm of sin, realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. And then he goes on in verse 6, But now by dying to what was once bound to us, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And so he kind of paints, if you imagine it, chapter 7, verse 5 is kind of an outline of the rest of chapter 7, talking about the flesh and the law. And verse 6 then is all about chapter 8. Again, remembering that Paul didn't write with chapters and verses. In fact, if you look at an ancient Greek manuscript, the letters are all crammed together. It's just one continuous line of words along there. And we've added those in, and they're helpful for reference, but sometimes they break us up and they confuse us as to what's going on. So he's painting this picture, and so he's starting to talk about the law because that's the question. And remembering, 
before Paul became a follower of Jesus, he was a Pharisee. In other words, he studied the law, he taught the law, he persecuted the church. He was adamant about obeying the law. And in one of, the other, one of his other letters, he talks about he was the penultimate. He was the ultimate Jew. I mean, he did everything right. He followed the rules and did all these right things. And so the question is, the people are asking there is, well, what do we do with this law? Is the, is the law good or bad? And so in verse 7, this is where he gets to. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Well, he says, certainly not. Okay, so we got that out of the way. The law wasn't bad, but then he goes, nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting was, really was, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And so what he's getting at is, what happens is we have the law and it's good, but sin, and again, I want us to think of sin not simply as the bad things we do, but sin as a power. Sin comes in and twists the law. It changes it. It affects it. And so that's what he describes in the rest of verses 8 and following. He's talking about it. And it's this picture of temptation is magnified when we're told not to do something. We know how that works. Like, I don't do that. What's the first thing we want to do? I mean, we can put it in the ridiculous if I tell you now, don't think about elephants. Oh, who just thought about an elephant? But, but more than that, sometimes like, oh, don't do that bad thing. And so even in the book of Proverbs, chapter 9, verse 17, stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. Christmas cookies snuck are delicious, right? But it's this picture that in the book of Proverbs of how sometimes knowing something's wrong tempts us to it. St. Augustine was an early leader in the church and he wrote a book called Confessions, talks about his life of debauchery, his life of sin, and his move to following Christ. But he tells in his book Confessions of his time as a young man, and he and his friends, he had a group of uh, young men that he used to carouse with, that he used to cause trouble with, that he used to be a rabble-rouser with. And one of the things they liked to do was to go to this neighbor's yard and steal the pears from their trees. I know. How many of us ever do it? We, we grew up in the country. We probably did that. We were walking through something. Oh, that looks good. And you just grab it off. But this is what he said was he, he stole the pears and they got to the point where it really wasn't about the pears anymore. It was just the fact that he could do it and that it was wrong. And what he said was this. He said, simply what was not allowed allured us. Simply what was not allowed allured us. In other words, it no longer became about the fact that he really wanted those pears. It became about the fact that it was wrong and that there were rules against taking the pair, so I'm going to break that rule. And so that's what Paul is getting at here was how sin twists the law, takes what God gives. God gives these commands, and then sin, this outside power, comes in and twists it and warps it and says, oh, God said I, don't, I can't do that, then I better do that. And if we read back to the earliest pages of the Bible, the book of Genesis, Tells the story of God creating the world, and He places in the world this man and this woman, Adam and Eve, and He sets them in the garden. And then one of the first things He does is what? He gives them a rule. He says, "Don't eat from that tree." They have one tree in the middle of the garden. Don't eat from that one. They got a whole garden filled with other trees, and God says, "Don't eat from that one." So then Satan, aka sin, comes in and says, "What about that tree over there?" 
And what happens? They eat from that tree. Because sin has taken the law and this prohibition in part has been twisted. So now there's a question, God says I can't have it. Well, why not? Why can't I have it? I should be able to have it. And see how sin works in our lives to take these laws. And so we see it today. God says to not do something. Or God says to live a certain way. And all of a sudden, well, why is God doing that to me? God's spoiling my fun. And so sin is coming in and twisting the law and changing it so that what's happening here, and this is what Paul's describing, is this picture of God gives us the law which is good, but sin takes it and twists it, and all of a sudden we want what God says we can't have. And this provokes a covetousness, and it leads to death. And so Paul's painting this picture and helping us understand, and then he goes on and he talks about this word, and you may have heard it when I was reading there, especially in verse 18, this word, the sinful nature, or depending on the translation you're using, the flesh or the body or the old nature. And so the word there, the Greek word is sarx, and it doesn't necessarily mean the body is evil, but what he's talking about is flesh, as Paul describes it, is life without the Spirit. We're plagued by sin and death, and we need rescued. And then, as you were listening, it was kind of confusing to follow, but verses 14 through 25 is this back and forth about, basically, I know the right thing to do, but the flesh, the sinful nature, it overwhelms me, so I do the wrong thing. And it goes back and forth. So if we listen to it, we know the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. In other words, I'm not living by the Spirit. I'm sold as a slave to sin. Verse 15, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. What I want to do, I do not do. No, you want to do the good thing. You have this desire to do it, but I don't do it. And then, but what I hate, the things I don't want to do, I do. And he kind of repeats himself in verses 18 through 20, this cycle of feeling that. And again, something we can all feel, but it's this picture He's retelling in some sense chapter 6 that we're slaves to sin, that we're controlled by sin in some way, or here he describes it not as sin as an outside power, but as sin as that lives inside of us. And we think, well, but, but if I just thought harder about it. But what he's saying is the mind can't control the body because the body and the mind are both affected by sin. And what he's ultimately getting to is each person, anybody who's outside of Christ is a slave to indwelling sin. I tell you what, chapter 7 is a depressing chapter. I mean, until this bright little spot in verse 24, well, okay, the first part, what a wretched man I am. That cheers us all up, right? What a wretched man. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to... Who's going to rescue me? Start of verse 25. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So it's this bright spot. So you can see him kind of trapped, and he's looking back on it. So Paul has been trapped in sin. He's painting this picture of what it is, but he's looking back and saying, but now I've been rescued, as he says this. And so we see, here, see that verse again, verse 24. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Again, here's another reason to think this isn't about Christians. Because he's asking, who's going to rescue me? Well, he's already been rescued. And then he goes on. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, we need a rescue from the outside. The law can't save us. All right. So you might be asking then, well, if, 
this is all about life before being a Christian, then how can it possibly apply to us? And I'm going to give some examples and some things to think about. One is, I think it can help us understand the power of sin. And it can maybe help us see how groups get involved in sin without giving it a thought. Have you ever been somewhere, or maybe you've watched a news story, heard about something, where maybe there's a people, group of people gather, and they're upset about something, and they're putting on a protest? It's something that maybe something someone has done, or maybe some unfair law, and they're gathering, and they're just kind of peacefully protesting, and then all of a sudden, people start flipping over cars and burning stores, and if you look, how did that happen? We see what's happening is they give, people get involved without sin, because this is how the power of sin begins to warp. We see it in the wars sometimes where you see a group of soldiers and all of a sudden they massacre a group of innocent civilians. And I would guess if you talked to any one of those soldiers as they started and began, went into battle, and if you asked anyone, would you ever shoot just a bunch of people, you know, line up a group of villagers or a group of people from the town and just line them up against the wall and shoot them? How many people do you think any of the soldiers would say yes? No. But something happens and it begins to take over. Or we can look at it on an individual level. Because, and I know this doesn't happen to any of you, but sometimes when people begin to follow Jesus, they get a little judgmental about other people. They begin to look down at other people and say, oh, I can't believe those people do that stuff. Those horrible sinners out there. What I would suggest is Romans chapter 7 might move us from judgment to compassion. Because one, it's a reminder of where we used to be. And two, it's a reminder of the power of sin at work in people's lives. That sometimes people are trying to do the good thing. They, want, they genuinely want to, but because of the power and the enslavement of sin, they don't do the right thing. And so maybe, just maybe instead of the judgment, we look with a little compassion. But we also have to ask ourselves the question, if this isn't, as Pastor Carl argues, about the Christian experience, why does it resonate with us so much? Why do I hear this, what I want to do, I do not do, and but what I hate, I do? Why do I hear that and say, yeah, that's me? Why do we have that feeling? Because there's still something going on. We don't go through this instant transformation when Jesus saves us of everything wiped away. But instead, what's happened is there are patterns that have been written in our heart from years of working. And so if we can imagine, say, a hill, and there's a stream of water running down. What happens? Water eventually find, creates what? A little pathway, right? And the rest of the water, it all begins to follow that pathway. And that's kind of what sin does in our life. It creates the pathway, and we get stuck in that. And when we're trapped in the power of sin, we can't get outside that pathway. We start at the top and we're just going to go down that pathway. Jesus comes in and he allows us to take a different path. But the problem is those grooves of sin have often been run deep. And so we can't just break out of it instantly. Some things we do, some things we break out and we start finding new ways to live. But there's a tendency 
of what's going on inside of us to go back to that old pattern. So John Coe, a professor at Biola, he talks about these vices that are in our heart. And he talks about what happens as our hearts leak. That there's these things that are going on inside of us and where that, that sinful nature, those, those old ways, they leak out. We want to do the right thing, but the old way leaks. And there's the hidden heart that we have to deal with. That the power of sin has been broken, but we're still not perfect and called to transformation. And Paul agrees with that. Romans chapter 6, verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. You hear that language of Paul saying, you've got to make a change so that you obey its evil desires. Or in Ephesians, his letter to one of the other churches, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. So in other words, the picture is we have to enter into this process of transformation. Jesus has allowed that to happen. And so what Paul has said in Romans 7 here is, Without Jesus, we can't break free of that. Without Jesus, we're going to be stuck in that path, constantly in sin, unable to break free, unable to do that. But Jesus comes and allows us to do it. So when we are justified as a follower of Jesus, we're no longer a person who cannot do the good. We're, listen to that. We're no longer a person who can't do the good. Now, through the power of Jesus, we can do the good, but there's still work to do. There's still work to do. We don't give our life to Jesus and all of a sudden never have a temptation, never have an evil thought, never do anything wrong. But instead, now through the power of Jesus as it were, we're able to do the good. And so we're going to keep coming back to this picture of it, and especially when we get to the later chapter. So we're going to continue on. We'll finish up a bit of chapter 8 before Christmas, and then after the new year, we're going to continue on in Romans. And when we get to especially chapters 12 through 15, we're going to be talking a lot about as Paul gets into what it looks like to put on this new life. But I found Joey Dodson gave some help as we think about this. And one of the things he said is, as we think about it, he says, one of the things we have to do is we have to have clarity. And what he means by this is, is our frustration the sin or the temptation to sin? So sometimes we say, well, I, I can't do the good. Is it that we can't do it or we're just really tempted to do it? And so Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, he writes this, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And so I think what Paul is getting at there and what he's getting at in Romans 7 is now we have the freedom to do it. It's no longer that we're stuck and we can't do the good. But is it maybe that we just succumb to the temptation? Or maybe is it that, like Augustine, we're lured by what we're not allowed? But now, because of Jesus Christ, we're set free to do the good. In other words, you have more freedom today than you did yesterday. It doesn't mean you can't do any good. So what I would invite you to do, look at your life and see how you are closer than you were. Because sometimes what happens is we look at our lives and depending on the Christian tradition we grew up in and our family life and all those different things, sometimes we only have the ability to see all the wrong things we do. 
We just notice all those things. We just look back on our lives and say, oh man, I'm just... And, and certain religious traditions kind of encourage us about the wretch and how, how miserable and despicable we all are. And so sometimes we can get in this pattern of we just look back and say, oh man, I've been following Jesus for 30 years and I'm still just a miserable wretch. But what I would invite you to do is maybe look back and say, am I really? Am I not somehow different than I was 10 or 15 years ago? And so what I would invite you to do is see that we are closer than we were. Maybe we're not as close as we want to be, but if we're following Jesus and we're giving our life to Him, God is going to bring us and make us closer. And He does that as we cultivate godliness, as we train ourselves. And so that's what we're going to keep coming back. As we keep offering ourselves up to God and His Spirit through prayer and fasting and Scripture and study and other disciplines to begin to change our, begin to open up to the work of the Spirit inside of us to change us. So Jesus has set us free from sin, and now the Spirit, and that's what we're going to be hitting on some next week, is beginning to set us free. And so what you may need to do in your life is, one, gain that clarity of like you're farther along than you were. Is it temptation or is it actually sin? The second thing is, think about how am I cultivating godliness in my life? How am I opening myself up to the work of God? Now, some of us can do things on our own. You can just get out there and do it on your own. Sometimes we need a partner. Sometimes we need somebody to come alongside of us and say, hey, we can do this together. And sometimes we need a coach. We need somebody to move us along. And the third and final thing that we might consider is confession. And not just with God, but with others. So let's go back again to Genesis chapter, the first story of Genesis. So we have Adam and Eve in the garden. There's this tree over there. God says, don't take it. Sin comes in or Satan comes in. Says, no, no, you can have that. They're tempted. They take it. And what's the first thing they do after they take it? They're ashamed. And then what do they do? They hide. They hide. And that's the temptation that comes in when we sin, is we want to hide. And we want to hide sometimes from others, but we also hide sometimes to hide from ourselves. And we try and deceive ourselves just as Adam and Eve entered into a pattern of deception. We try and deceive ourselves. And what confession does when we come to God, and sometimes it just confessing to another person as we open up his deceptions, not simply about the things we have done wrong, because that's where we often stop. We often kind of get that surface level. Well, I lied about that. Okay. You confess the sin, I lied. But what God is inviting us to do is to go a little bit deeper and to explore, well, but why did I do that? Why in that moment when I was asked, instead of responding in truth, did I respond with a lie? What's the pattern? What are those hidden things inside of our heart that are causing us to do those things? And so confession and times of conversation with God can help us to get to that point. Because if you find yourself in that pattern of, I, I, there's this thing I don't want to do, but, but I keep going back to it. Why do I keep looking at those things on the computer that I don't want to do? Why do I keep ending up in these angry outbursts? Why do I keep... And 
What we need to do is go beyond the surface and say, well, it's not simply about that, but it's beginning to look deep inside of us and say, what's causing those things? Why do I do that? Is there some need for affirmation? Is it, is it a loneliness? Is it something else that's going on? And what God is inviting us to do is to change and transform. Because God wants us to change. Sometimes we think, oh, God is just sitting there and saying, okay, come on, pull yourself up, get going on it. We're Americans, that's what we do. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we get it done because we don't need anybody else. We're the independents, we're the cowboys, we're the, we're the pioneers. The life of Jesus is not a cowboy. It's not a pioneer. It's not a do it by yourself. It's a God doing it in and out our lives. And so God is saying, I want to change you, I want to transform you. So when we're stuck in those patterns, instead of saying, oh, God, we can say, oh, God, help me now. Help me find what's going on in my life because I have been set free. I've been broken free. I am no longer a slave to sin. I am no longer dead. I am no longer stuck in these patterns, but Jesus Christ has set me free. And so now, God, help me live into this new life. I have been justified through Jesus Christ. I have been changed. I have been transformed. Now, God, continue to work that transformation in me. So, as we're thinking about this, you may be in one of two places. You may be at that place where you just feel absolutely stuck in that, and you're wondering how to do it. And I would say this, if you haven't given your life to Jesus, if you haven't given your allegiance to Him, if you haven't asked for His forgiveness, you haven't, then this is the beginning step to say, Jesus, I need you. I'm stuck in these patterns of sin. I'm stuck in these things, and I'm doing the things I don't want to do and the things I do want to do, I can't do. And Jesus wants to forgive you and then change and transform you. But if you've already made that step, if you've already given your life to Christ and you've given your allegiance to Him and asked for His forgiveness, I would say to this, when you fall into those patterns, remind yourself, this is not who you are, it's who you were. This is not who you are, but it's who you were. And so ask God to continue to change and to transform you because that's what he will do. That's what he has done in Jesus and that's what he will continue to do. So I want us to conclude by reminding ourselves of the word that Paul says. Romans 7, 25, thanks be to God who delivers me through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's what he does. Whatever pattern of sin we're stuck in, God delivers us from that. So can we say that all together? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. One more time. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.